1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And Nerdette is a place where we talk to your favorite or soon-to-be favorite people about how their passions drive what they do. This week, we are talking to a woman whose passion is very, very long, very, very old poetry in other languages. Doesn't that sound really exciting? I'm here to tell you it honestly should be. We're talking to Madeline Miller, and she is the author of, by far, hands down, my favorite book of 2018. She's written two books now, Song of Achilles, which is also excellent. But this year, she came out with this book called Circe that is just gorgeous. They're both based on those really old, really long poems by Homer. We have the Iliad and the Odyssey. In case you don't remember, the Iliad is just about a really long war. And then the Odyssey is about some of those soldiers from that war trying to get back home. They're led by this dude named Odysseus. They end up on this island that's run by this witch. That witch turns some of the dudes into pigs. That witch is named Circe. And and that is what Circe is all about. It is such a great book. I am so excited to share this interview with you. Madeline, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So to be clear, your latest book is called Circe, but this is not a book
2: about Cersei Lannister. <laughs> that is right. Spelled differently. It is spelled differently. <laughs> and technically in the Greek it would have been a hard it would have been a hard c so it would have been kirke. So. Ah, good
1: to know. I'm glad you're just going directly to the
2: source material
1: that quickly. I <laughs> very much appreciate that. So what do you say to people who argue that learning Latin or Greek or even studying classics just isn't relevant anymore?
2: Um so I totally understand uh, (laughs) you get it I get it I understand (laughs) that but I also think that there is a reason why these stories have lasted for 3,000 years and that they are incredibly insightful about human nature and you know Culture has changed, and the way we go to war has changed. But the stories that we tell about war, about loss and grief, even things like post-traumatic stress disorder, the Greeks understood all of that, um, and and I think they were incredibly insightful about about the human heart. And so, when you read these stories, what's amazing is that they don't feel old; they feel very new. It feels like these scenes could happen. Um, I actually just had this. There's this beautiful, beautiful scene um, in the Iliad where the Trojan Prince Hector, the great warrior, has come in from the battlefield, washed the blood off his hands uh, and he has an interaction with his wife and his infant son. Um, And the infant son sees him and bursts into tears. And they realize that it's because he has his big helmet on, which is, you know, scary oh, yeah. and, and frightening. So he takes his helmet off and then the baby recognizes him. And it's a sort of very cute scene and the parents are laughing because it's a sweet thing. Um, and this happened to me uh, a couple months ago when my husband put on a baseball hat in front of our baby for the first time and like our child just lost it. Um, and I was like, that's it. That's the scene. <laughs> you know, it, it's <laughs> happening right here. Wait, so literally so- at that moment, you're like, oh, this reminds me of that, of that point in the Iliad when Hector
1: comes it, back from battle.
2: <laughs> it did, actually. That makes me sound really nerdy. No, but that I love it. I mean, that's I amazing. Of. That's perfect. <laughs> Welcome to Nerdette.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, something I've been thinking a lot about lately that I feel like you must think about too is like, what actually is canon? You know, like why, what the classics, what excellent literature really is and who got to decide that, right? Mm, And I think mm. especially looking throughout history, when so often women and so many other people weren't allowed to be a part of that conversation about what really made something good. Yes. It makes me wonder if the things that we consider excellent really are or really should be Mm -hmm. and what we're missing,
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So, I have, I have two, I, I'm, it's something I think about a lot also. Um, and I sort of come at it from, from two ways. Um, one is that I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to, to write these books, because in both cases, I felt like I was excavating a perspective that was being, you know, obscured in the original. I was, I was looking from a female perspective, um, in the very sort of male-oriented Odyssey, um, trying to, you know, set a female at the center of epic. And one of the things about epic is that it's a predominantly male genre. Um, you know, it's all about sort of death and heroics and battles and, uh, all things that are traditionally associated with men. And so I kind of wanted to turn that on its head and and bring out some other epic things that have been excluded from those kind of narratives. Epic things like birth, um, which mm-hmm. is every bit as epic as death, if not more so. So in some sense, I, w- I think with both these novels, I was trying to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... In another sense, I sort of find myself in this strange position because the two things I love most in the world and am most obsessed with are classics and Shakespeare, which are, you know, kind of the ultimate dead white males. Um, (laughs) And, you know, but what is so and I personally love them and I've spent, you know, spent tons of time looking at them both. But I also do not believe in the idea of, you know, the Western canon as it has been constructed and... You know, my my favorite author, maybe after that, is James Baldwin. And I Mm. I think that we need to really throw open the doors and examine exactly as you say, you know, all these works that were shut out and all these voices that were shut out and allow them to come in. Um, And, you know, maybe some of these classics won't be able to compete when (laughs) when that happens. Um, And if so, you know, then then that's fine. Um, so I, I firmly believe that, that students should be reading widely. And I, am not one of those people who, you know, thinks that the Western canon must be taught. Um, I love these things and I have found meaning in them, but there are lots of places to find meaning. Any brilliant writer can give you that.
1: I mean, I can kind of get a sense even just hearing you describe them because I can tell that you love these stories, (laughs) but I wonder like what inspired you
2: to create these novelizations of these classics? So these were, as you say, stories that I have loved and obsessed over and studied um, for a really long time. And there were things in the Iliad and the Odyssey that I approached and, and wrote many papers about as an undergraduate and as a master's student in classics. Um, but there were there were things that I couldn't answer in papers that I wanted to answer in a really in a different way. Um, And one of the things was that moment of Achilles' grief in the Iliad, where he is just, his life is just completely blown up by losing Patroclus. And, we don't really see very much of Patroclus. And so really it was a mystery. I wanted to sort of answer this question of who is this man who means so much to Achilles? Why does he mean so much to Achilles? And, you know, if Homer shows us the end of their story, what's the beginning of their story? How do we get to that moment um, of just obliterating grief on Achilles' part? So I think, I think it was this mystery that really couldn't be answered in, in a paper. Um, it needed to be answered in, in a different way. And, and same thing with Circe, that she is this, um, you know, the, the Odyssey is very much from the male heroic tradition perspective, um, and so Circe is this fascinating pig figure. She's pig mm. um <laughs> good <one>. fascinating figure <laughs> who turns men to pigs. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Freudian slip. I love it. Uh, and you know, she's on this island, the gods are a little bit afraid of her. How do you get on an island and start turning men to pigs? You know, who is she outside <laughs> the bounds of Odysseus's story? Because she, you know, she functions only as kind of servant to his desires or obstacle, you know, that, that he as the valorous hero has to overcome. So, but who is she outside of that story? Who mm-hmm. is she before and who is she after? And so sort of that mystery of, of exploring her from her own perspective and on her own terms, as opposed to part of the the, you know, kind of a servant to the male heroic tradition. I have to tell you, I think I've read upwards of 50 books so far this year, and Circe
1: was by far my favorite. Oh, thank you. And I don't know if partly I had low expectations because I was like, I don't know, the Odyssey, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> didn't do a whole lot for me in college. I guess I'll give it a shot. But I was just so impressed with the life that you were able to breathe into this story. I just thought it was so gorgeous.
2: You know I think part of what I wanted to do, although oftentimes I think the book gets described as, as a retelling of the Odyssey, is actually I wanted to limit the Odyssey to a very small piece of it. Mm. So Circe shows up in two plus books of The Odyssey. She's a cameo and Odysseus is in two plus books of this novel and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you literally count so that it would be the I, same? Did. <laughs> that's I did so I did. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Coming up after the break, we'll talk more about Circe, but we'll also talk about how one small word translated in a certain way can
2: change the meaning of an entire story. Even as a translator, I think there are ways to keep opening up that field of vision so we can see more, you know, fully the, the picture of the society and the people whose stories are not being told. You're listening to Nerdette.
0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events.
1: So when did you first read them? Do you remember the first time you encountered these texts?
2: I do, actually. Um, I was five and six, and my mother had started reading me bits of the Iliad and the Odyssey as bedtime stories. What? Which, uh, yeah, I know. She thinks it makes her sound really bad. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but, um, but I loved it. I completely fell in love. And I have, you know, this, dr- these dramatic memories of her reading the Cyclops scene where, wow. you know, the, the Cyclops eats Odysseus's men, and he has to blind the Cyclops with this huge sharpened stake. And um, I'm sure my mom was editing a little bit. There's a lot of gore in these old stories. <laughs> but, you know, the the sort of the primal terror, adventure, excitement, emotion all came through. And I just I was completely in love. It seems like.
1: Your books and the work that you've been doing is part of I mean, I don't want to call it a new genre, but I feel like there's this really cool space that's been opening up that I've only noticed recently anyway, where women are kind of reinventing classic mythology. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about your work. I'm thinking about the novelization of Beowulf by Maria Devana Headley and even Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, the the first actual published translation of an of the Odyssey by a woman only came out this year. Yep. And I just think that's so, like, what a fascinating space to exist in at this time. What, like... Thousands, literally thousands of years after these things were actually written and talked about, and you know, part of people's daily lives.
2: Yes, I love, I love that that is happening, and that we are going back and and finding new corners and and giving new voice. Um, one of the things I love Emily Wilson's translation. I have not read the Beowulf one yet, but I really want to. That's the the mere wife. Yes, and then is she's
1: actually translating it too, and that's coming
2: out oh, next how year. Wonderful. So yeah, she's got a novelization
1: out now, but then the actual translation comes out later as well. Wow wow um,
2: that 's amazing i can 't wait to read that right? <laughs> uh, but in terms of of Emily Wilson, which I have read and, and which I love one of the things that she does um, is that uh, there 's this sort of notorious scene that happens at the end of the Odyssey, where Odysseus has killed all these suitors who are besieging his wife in his home, and then he has killed all the people who have helped those suitors, and then he orders the maids, the so called maids who slept with the suitors to be killed. Any of them who slept with the suitors must be killed. Um, And it has become sort of translating tradition to use the word maids, but the word in Greek means slave. They are slaves. And so, of course, the idea that they slept with, you know, these suitors, that would have been a completely non-consensual situation. You know, they would have had no choice in that, and yet they're going to be punished for it. Um, And so Emily Wilson makes that very clear, and she doesn't use the word maid. She uses the word slave or house slave or female slave because she doesn't want that to get whitewashed out, you know, for us to kind of forget that this is a slave society. Most of these characters are aristocrats. We are only getting a very, very small piece of the story. So even as a translator, I think there are ways to keep opening up that field of vision so we can see more, you know, fully the, the picture of the society and the people whose stories are not being told.
1: Yeah, Maria Devanna Headley, the woman who wrote uh, The Mere Wife, which is the modern retelling of Beowulf and who will be translating Beowulf, she was on NPR recently. And she had a really amazing example around translation with Beowulf, where The Mm -hmm. same exact word is used to describe Beowulf, Grendel's mother, Grendel, and the dragon. You know, some are masculine or feminine or neuter based on which creature you're talking about. But it's the Mm -hmm. same Old English word essentially for each of those. And for Beowulf, it's translated as hero. And for Grendel, it's translated as monster. And for Grendel's Mm -hmm. mother, it's translated as hag. Wow. That's amazing. Right? That's really amazing. It yes. just seems to me like such a perfect example of how important it is to try to capture the nuance around certain words as you're translating them.
2: Yes. And to acknowledge that, you know, translation is not objective and that translators are making choices like that that are informed by their own biases, um, you know, and that we should not. We One of the things I like so much about Emily Wilson, and it sounds like she's uh, right on this track, too, is that she acknowledges that you know it is not an objective thing and that she is making choices and so in a sense she is not just translating but interpreting at the same time and yeah. that you, you have to do that but I think there's been this sense that translation is sort of um, you know literally bringing one thing over into another thing it's this it's this alchemical transformation <laughs> where the translator is just the conduit but mm-hmm. none of their own stuff goes into it but that's completely not true.
1: Yeah, it just seems like such an important thing to recognize, especially as we consider how many of these stories we've been consuming and considering a part of our lives, you know, with these specific words and how that could change our perceptions of things
2: even now, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, one, one of the things that was really fun is looking you know, at the scenes in the Odyssey where Circe appears and kind of radically trying to alter the perspective. So one of the classic descriptions of Circe is that she has well-dressed hair. She has this beautiful, fancy hairdo. Um, Sometimes she's described as having shining braids or pretty braids or something like that. And, you know, that is sort of the thing that Odysseus goes home and boasts about. You know, I bagged the goddess who has beautiful (laughs) hair and she's really (laughs) gorgeous and fancy. Um, But, you know, Circe is a witch who lives on an island who's constantly tramping around the woods you know picking up herbs and talking to her lions and her wild boars and so of course she's braiding her hair you know that's just practical and so I wanted to kind of to kind of switch that perspective
1: there is a line which I am going to butcher now but hopefully you can help me remember it it is after so Cersei lives alone on this island, and for the most part, she's super self-sufficient. She's very strong. She totally makes it work. She's banished there, but she she thrives there on her own in a lot of ways. And this group of men comes, and they're violent and horrible, and they rape her. And afterwards, she talks about how they assumed that they could because she was alone.
2: Do you have that? Would you mind reading a little bit of that? Sure. Um, so it's uh, the line is, if I were valuable to anyone, I would not be allowed to live alone. Oh, man, I
1: think it's partly as someone who lives alone. It was just like, oh, my God, it was just so beautiful.
2: Well, and part of what, you know, I, I sort of was looking at with Cersei is the fact that she has to live alone. That is the only way that she is able to have her her independence, but it also exposes her. Um, you know, that's surrounded by now, surrounded by her family, they're just as likely to hand her off you know, to somebody and marry her to someone she doesn't want to be with. But that, you know, part of this is kind of Virginia Woolf, you know, room of one's own. In order to have independence and kind of intellectual freedom, she needs an island of her own. Right. But that there are there are, are dangers and costs associated with that in in this very hostile world, in this world that is hostile to women and it sort of sees women as property that that men are entitled to if they catch you alone. So it's it was it was something I, I really I thought about that moment a lot.
1: I can tell. Yeah, I hadn't even drawn that parallel, but you're absolutely correct. I think that's why it resonated with me so strongly is the idea that independence, to a great extent, does mean loneliness. And here we are, you know, as women, we've gotten so far, right? Like just the fact that I can live alone and make my own money and have my own cell phone plan and all that stuff is relatively new in human history. But there is still a cost to that that's just so fascinating.
2: Yes. Yes. But that in some sense, you know, that is the only way given the kind of cultural pressures that are constantly surrounding women, you know, even now that 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 aloneness is is necessary to kind of push away all those pressures and and to sort of try and experience thought without them interfering. Yeah.
1: So you've seen a lot of success from these books, and I wonder, especially, you know, I just plowed through them. I read, I listened to Circe, and then I listened to Song of Achilles, like within 10 days probably I'd finished both of them. And, you know, especially since I did kind of do some dabbling in classics and English literature, I am super interested in exploring these worlds more. Is there a book that you think people should try to read in its classic form, not the novelization necessarily, but like to go back to one of these original source materials and
2: spend some time with it? Um, I think Emily Wilson's Translation of the Odyssey, excellent, excellent. Um, And and very exciting, capturing kind of the the fact that these were initially stories that were told to an audience as as entertainment. You know, it, it really moves along quickly. One of the reasons why translations often feel a little bit slow or can feel slow is that... One line of Greek can kind of bloat to be two or three lines of English, and all of a sudden, if you're doing that for every line, all of a sudden you have something that's just so much longer. whereas Homer, if you read it in the original, is really punchy, and she gets hmm. that. Um, and she keeps it punchy and she keeps it moving very fast. And so it really, you know it feels like you're on this wild ride. Um, so absolutely that. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear you say that because it has
1: been on my bookshelf for a while, but I've just been, I guess, waiting for you to tell me to do it. <laughs>
2: it's, very, it's very good. It's very good okay, and very good. interesting. And she's ferociously smart. Um, so, yes, she really is. I would totally recommend reading her. I, I don't always recommend reading scholarly forewords, but hers is wonderful.
1: So I don't know if you are able to
2: talk about this, but do you know what you're going to novelize next? Um, I have two things I'm I'm thinking about that are kind of germinating, and it takes me a long, a long time to germinate. Circe was seven years, Song of Achilles was 10. So who knows uh, what this one will be. But um, one story is about the Aeneid. I, I, I love the Aeneid. Virgil's Aeneid is one of the great sort of other ancient loves of my life. And, and it's basically, we were talking about these retellings uh, it's, you know, one of the first kind of retellings, if you can think of it as Homeric fan fiction, um, because he's <laughs> like, what about if I told the story of the Iliad, but from the Trojan perspective? Mm-hmm. And I did it all from, you know, from the underdog side. Uh, and it's wonderful. And it became, you know, one of the founding works of literature for Rome. And, and he was very much trying to do kind of a Roman Iliad and Odyssey. But Virgil is very interested in kind of looking at all the people who have to be you know, destroyed and stepped on to get to power. And so that's that's an idea that I'm really interested in. That
1: is awesome. Madeline Miller, thank you so much for talking with us. This has really been a pleasure.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh man,
1: I gotta say, there is nothing better than getting to read a book that I super love and talking to the author about it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And it is worth noting lucky for you and for all of us, really, Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey is actually coming out in audiobook form on November 20th. I have recruited at least one friend already to listen along with me over Thanksgiving. If that is of interest to you, holler at me. I'm Greta M. Johnson on Twitter. The show was produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with our intern Sophie Lalonde and Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita, and our executive producer is Brendan Bannazak. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen on the WBEZ app. It is also super helpful if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to Mad for Scramble for the review. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at NerdApp Podcast. Hey we have a newsletter. I bet you will like it. I know in this interview, I actually dropped a lot of different author names and books in the course of this episode. I'm going to put all of them in the newsletter. So you should sign up for it. You can do that at wbez.org slash Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Go read an old book. Okay, so you just used the phrase Homeric fan fiction, which is kind of delightful and amazing and hilarious. But it makes me wonder, do you consider yourself to be a writer of Homeric fan fiction?
2: <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a, an ex-boyfriend who, who said that, but he, he apologized after The Song of Achilles came out.
0: <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen. Nguyen